Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. We still don't get paid what I believe we're worth. I had secretly been wanting to try health coaching. Women have been dropping out. Your body is the next frontier of liberation. You have to monetize. We buy into this idea that anyone can do this. Your body becomes proof. Whether or not we're trying to sell a service or a product, all women are brands. Now I'm a health coach. My name is Kyla Tova, and this is Your Body, Your Brand. Episode 4, Dangerous Investments. It, it all started with CrossFit. <laughs> well, I mean, it started before that because I was always like just hyper obsessed with <clears throat> trying to lose weight. But CrossFit was really the catalyst that made me think, oh, fitness is cool. That's Summer Inanin, the body image coach. I went to my trainer and I was like, what can I do to try and change my body? Um, and he was like, you can change your diet. And he was like, here's what you can do. And so I, that's what, that's what triggered me into paleo. And because it actually did change my body a little bit to start, like most diets do, um, I became just obsessed with it. And because it, it was, it also had like such a big online community component to it. Um, and like, there's like, you know, like the leaders of the movement who are, just kind of preaching how it can like treat all these different illnesses and you know, you're going to like quote unquote look good naked and like all this stuff. Like it just fed all my insecurities. It was like, Oh, here's the solution to all my fears and all my insecurities. And so I got so into it. And then, you know, I'm, I'm, I do enjoy learning about like science and like why things work. And so when I got into kind of like the, the physiological side of, of, that way of eating and you know, the information that I was taking in made total sense to me. And it was the same thing. It was like, Oh wait, we've been told all this stuff that's wrong. You know, like that rebellious side of me was like, I want to fight against the system. So I want to advocate for paleo. I want to teach other people paleo. And so that's kind of what got me into it. And so, you know, that's why I went back to school to become a nutritionist. Cause then I wanted to be able to teach it and all that stuff and got super into it. And, um, you know, like was, was how to, you know, started my business in that space and was helping women. And specifically it was, it was around weight loss. Um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I ended up, I was working for the, you know, for the whole 30 for a while, which I think, you know, a lot of people who know me know that, um, I represented them in Canada for, for about a year or so. And, um, and, and then, you know, when the wheels fell off in my own life in terms of like realizing the damage that that obsession was doing to my body, um, I slowly had stepped away from it. So I, I didn't just like break up with it completely because it was such a rock to my world. Like it's, it shook my world so big to, to realize that I had these problems um, that to kind of step away from like that community, my career, uh, what I thought was like my biggest passion to do that with a flip of a switch, I would never have been able to do that. I had to really kind of like slowly kind of see the light and slowly step out of it. This episode is going to begin with a little introduction before you have the chance to meet the rest of our guests. So, so far, we've talked about diet culture, women dropping out of the workforce, and branding. Today, we're talking economics and identity. All right, so pardon the dictionary definition, but we got to get this out of the way. According to the American Economics Association, economics is the study of scarcity, the study of how people use resources and respond to incentives, or the study of decision-making. Most economists traditionally assume that all decisions that humans make about resources are rational. Therefore, we can study them through economics. But within economics, there's a study of behavioral economics, which assumes that human decision-making is irrational. According to Wikipedia, and I chose that source because the definition was the most concise, it's the study of the effects of psychological, social, cognitive, and emotional factors on the economic decisions of individuals and institutions. In other words, it's the study of factors outside of rational calculations that might affect how you make your seemingly rational decisions. 
Within the field of behavioral economics, there's an even smaller, less well-known area of inquiry, and that's where we're going to land today. The study of the economics of identity. The concept of identity economics was first put forth in a paper and then a resulting book by professors George Akerlof and Rachel Cranton. Identity economics takes behavioral economics to, I personally think, a more useful place. Per Akerlof and Cranton's groundbreaking August 2000 article in the Quarterly Journal of Economics, identity economics introduces identity, a person's sense of self, into economic analysis. It uses social difference to build a model of behavior and even seeks to explain how notions of identity evolve within a society and some in the society have incentives to manipulate those notions of identity. I'm going to quote a little bit from the article. If you do want to see the exact quotes, please make sure that you go to the show notes for today's episode where I'll link to this article. So identity economics uses social difference to build a model of behavior, and it even seeks to explain how notions of identity evolve within a society, and some in the society have incentives to manipulate those notions of identity. This model of economics is incredibly useful when analyzing the allure of the body-based business and why some women choose to drop out of the workforce to start one. According to Akerlof and Cranton, individuals' decisions are driven not only by idiosyncratic tastes, but also by internalized social norms. So what does this have to do with sexism in the workplace or fear of weight gain, as we've talked about in the first two episodes? Well, consider the following. As Christy Harrison, Melissa Toller, and I discussed in the first episode, we live in a world where we are constantly being reminded of social norms. One such norm that affects people who identify as women is the norm of caring about how you look, of viewing your physical appearance as your sense of worth, self or otherwise. And as humans, we are social and tribal creatures. We seek to associate with the people whose norms fit with ours. So, like the snake eating its tail, we create communities around our internalized norms, and then that reinforces the norms we follow and perform so that we can remain in those communities. From paleo Facebook groups to Monday night soul cycle class, from Weight Watchers meetings to bikini body accountability groups, we see other women modeling the norms that we perceive for ourselves and we seek to fit in. As Akerlof and Cranton point out in their book, following a norm is seen as a way to prove something important about yourself to others. Norms establish our identities and community with others. They prove our value. And, per the book, at least some level of belief in the norms for their own sake is necessary to prevent the norms from unraveling. But if norms like dieting and hating your body and undereating and overexercising are bad or damaging, then why do we do things like buy products that help us practice them or leave our jobs to promote them? Well, when you've internalized something so much that it becomes a part of your belief system, it's not that easy to just kick a belief to the curb, right? You need to see solid and sometimes repeated proof that the belief is a wrong one. And in the culture in which we live, we very rarely get proof that dieting is bad or thinness isn't the ultimate goal because we're bombarded by messages stating the opposite. And we're continuously rewarded with both social and financial capital when we perform the act of dieting or showing off our fitness. And while people of all genders do diet, dieting is a gendered norm. Because thinness, smallness, and visible signs of youth and sexual health or fertility have been considered signifiers of female value for as long as patriarchal societies have existed. Even after women stopped being considered currency, internalized notions of the female body and how it acquires and maintains value persisted, which means that people who believe in these norms are likely to continue perpetuating them and to be susceptible when those norms are exploited for economic gain, as with dieting. You know, our modern understanding of dieting kind of dates back to the 1800s when industrialization increased wealth and made food more abundant. If you can believe it, there was a time in our history when ample bosoms and wider waists fell by the wayside because it was fashionable to look as though you were poor and dying of tuberculosis. Diet obsession kicked into high gear, though, with the increase in the availability and penetration of the mass media, along with the growth of photography as an art form. You know, when there's products to push and body image to be concerned about, it's fairly easy for an advertiser to prey upon these newly discovered insecurities. Akerlof and Cranton explain that advertising, and here I'll extend that into marketing, 
has an effect on not just the perpetuation but the creation of social norms. They write, marketing researchers and others outside of economics have long understood this point. Gender ideas and norms are an obvious place to look. The purpose of advertising is often to make people want a product in order to live up to an ideal. Advertising is the reason that women shave their legs, for example. Gillette saw an opportunity for increasing their profits by selling razors to the previously untapped 50% of the population, and they did so by leveraging the fashion norms of the day. Shorter dresses were suddenly in vogue, and people's sense of shame. You wouldn't want a man to see a hairy leg, would you? So, if we take a look at the ways in which we see women acquiring value in the present day, we see a couple of options. One, she can be privileged enough to get an education in business or STEM, have the right connections, and fight her way to the top of the economic and corporate food chain. Or two, she can do a 30-day cleanse, get a ton of likes on Facebook or Instagram, and call herself a health coach so she can teach other women how to diet. Which one sounds easier? At the same time, when we do choose to go for option one, as Carrie and Golia discussed in episode two, we're constantly reminded of our not-maleness. So, Katrina Marsal, author of the book Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner, A Story of Women in Economics, has a chapter on gender in which she writes, It is only woman who has a gender. Man is human. Only one sex exists. As such, Marsal reasons, women can only create or obtain value when they are acting ungendered, i.e., like a man. See the invention of the pantsuit and the proliferation of shoulder pads in the 80s, anything to change the shape of the body to appear more masculine. Marcel writes, Woman can only gain entry to the categories that count economically and politically if she leaves her body on the other side. In other words, if we're not constructing ourselves in opposition to men, say as housewives, caretakers, teachers, etc., then to enter into the corporate workforce and to expect to make a living is to leave the female-coded body behind. But that was then. And now, the internet has opened up a third way one in which we can create value for and extract value from a community of other women specifically by using our bodies. You know, in some ways, body-based businesses or body as brand is a reclamation of economic force from patriarchal norms. And in others, it's throwing up our hands and conceding that we can never move past our bodies like men can. So think back to episode two when Carrie discussed what it was like to be a woman in the workforce without female leadership or female peers. In this situation, you are constantly reminded of your femaleness, your outsider status, your identity. Ding, ding, ding. Akerlof and Cranton bring up the topic of priming in their book. Priming describes why people behave differently when they are, and I quote, reminded even subtly of their racial, ethnic, and gender identities. So, when you're in a situation where you are being primed to feel different, to feel female, you may, without even realizing it, begin to unconsciously seek out things that make you feel valued and normal within the context of your identity. Things that a woman might do, like dieting. And what we're going to discuss today is the logical extension of that search for a gendered normal. Value. Capital. Being liked and getting paid. Feeling like you have an economic utility, a sense of agency, and a community. Three things that traditionally male forms of employment rarely offer to women identifying people. And three things that the internet tells you you can gain by exploiting your body image concerns and the body image concerns of others. I want to jump back now to a conversation we started in the first episode with Melissa Toller. So I want to talk a little bit about the fitness world because uh, I have personal experience there as well. It is, uh, It can be very um, motivating and inspirational and it can feel very almost like you're, you're on a mission to do something. And I want to talk a little bit about the mindset that that created for you specifically uh, when you were focusing on your body and how lean it was, et cetera. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the whole fitness in the whole fitness and bodybuilding world. It's, it's very achievement oriented and your achievement is how lean you are and what you do to get to that point. And the mindset is that I, it's, and I was actually just thinking about this yesterday when I saw someone post about this. And it just made me think like it's, it becomes the most important achievement almost in your life. 
um, the way that when you see people who are in fitness competitions or in the fitness world, they equate getting lean as like this <laughs> major accomplishment. Like you just like discovered the cure for something. And um, that's sort of the mindset that you have. Like this is the most important thing that you can be doing. This is what separates you from the other people. So there was also that whole thing about just being elite or different um, and, and superior really. Yeah, that's, yeah, that, that, that is, <laughs> that is it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so interesting when we, when we look at, you know, the bodybuilding world, you know, I, I was there as well and I, I was in this intense body hatred, like intense. And at the same exact time, I had these like, delusions of grandeur almost about what I was doing and how, you know, I used to look around at the people around me and see flab and, you know, <laughs> different sizes and just think, you know, I did something that these people will never be able to do. And it's also my mission yes. to help make them do it as well. Yep. Right. Yep. Like we kind of become self-appointed inspirational figures or something like that. <laughs> Yes. You know, and I think that that for me was my first experience as a brand, um, if that makes any sense, because I felt like when I posted a picture online or I checked in at the gym, what I was doing was suddenly available to other people as something that they could now consume, if that makes sense. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Right. And it Absolutely. was. And like, I, I believed that I also was going to make money from it. I don't know uh, if you had the same feelings like reading Oxygen magazine and seeing all the, the women who were sponsored by this, that and the other protein powder or whatever. I, I believed that if I got to a point where I was even more elite than I already was, people would pay me to be thin. <laughs> yes, I thought I could make money from it as well. Um, I don't know if I thought about sponsorships. I don't know how I thought I was going to make money. <laughs> but it's just funny when I think back, that's just, it seems like that's just the way it was. There were messages that I got that told me that I could make money being thin mm -hmm. and um, being lean and inspirational, mm -hmm. quote, inspirational. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it was just like, that's the thing that you do. And I also, at times, had that same thinking, like, I'm doing this and other people aren't doing this, so there's something special about me and I'm getting up at five o'clock in the morning and I'm going to the gym and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know, all of that stuff that comes along with it. But that was, and probably still is, the culture in that space. The fitness, nutrition, and body image world offers women the opportunity to achieve in ways they cannot access in their quote-unquote real careers. As Melissa stated, there are messages everywhere that tell you you can and should be monetarily rewarded for being thin. Nearly every woman I talked to for this podcast started their story by talking about dieting and obsessing about their bodies. Few started their story talking about how much they hated their jobs, however... Most did talk about how, once they got invested emotionally with their workout or their diet regimens, and more specifically the communities, both online and off, that promote those workouts and diet regimens, that they began to see ways to monetize. Here's Bethany Edwards, a science professor at Berkeley. So um, my name's Bethany Edwards, actually Dr. Bethany Edwards. Um, I have a PhD in oceanography. Um, I'm a scientist. And I guess um, I kind of as a side job kind of flirted with the idea of um, being a fitness model or being a social media influencer. Um, and, you know, that all kind of came about, uh, I guess I, uh, I've always been someone who like worked out to like eat, right? Like I worked out so that I could eat whatever I wanted to eat and not have to worry about it. And that worked out, you know, all right. But, um, you know, I started, I think I had a foot injury and like my, the thing I did was running. I always ran. Um, I had a foot injury, and so I, like, picked up Bikram yoga and then, you know, to heal myself, and it was lower impact. And 
Um, then from there, I got introduced to a, another form of yoga, which um, I actually became an instructor in. And, you know, that's where I think I kind of got kind of ingrained into like the Instagram yoga challenges. And um, they have a very specific way of eating, um, kind of, um, I would say, encourages people to consider grain-free, dairy-free eating. Um, and so, you know, I kind of took that on and did their like 30 day, uh, detox cleanse, whatever it was. Um, and then, you know, I was converted, like that's what we did, you know? And I think there's nothing wrong with being grain free or dairy free, but it definitely, I think for people who maybe don't have the healthiest relationships with food, um, and people who are maybe going to like a health, I have lupus or I have, some autoimmune disease and I think that this might help me more like I want to be skinny I want to fit this mold of you know what is um, aesthetically pleasing um it, it can be dangerous it can definitely be dangerous and so um from there I took it one step further and I you know kind of got ingrained into the um Instagram world and I I mean I don't have a lot of followers at all but I was you know consuming this media all the time and as instructors we're encouraged to you know post on social media um you know get involved in these challenges tag all these people use all these hashtags um you know and so uh, I definitely you know started just consuming that media all the time and I started seeing all these Instagram um, like fitness models women who are competing um, with IFPB and with um, the WBFF and um, all these different um, fitness federations and um, you know it's really inspiring to see these women like working so hard and getting up every morning and really challenging their bodies and um, you know so I decided to do that and um, that just took you know what was already kind of like me being grain-free dairy-free and like eating a bit of rice after work because I worked in an Italian restaurant and sometimes I would eat some of the risotto after work and then like feeling guilt and shame over it for three days, you know, and like going on this forum with all these other yogis who are living this grain-free, dairy-free lifestyle for the most part and like seeing post after post of being like, oh my God, I had a piece of pizza at a kid's birthday party and I'm bloated. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm so bloated. And it was just like post after post after post of all these women being like, I'm so bloated. And so it's like, we are strong, successful women with way more to think about than like whether or not you can see like a hint of abs or not, you know? Akerloff and Cranton's paper on identity economics helps explain why smart, accomplished people like Bethany end up partaking in detrimental and obsessive behaviors. In their construction of identity economics, they say that identity, one, can explain behavior that appears detrimental, because people may use their behavior to bolster a sense of self or salve a diminished self-image. Two, it underlies a new type of externality, meaning that your actions can have meaning for and evoke responses in others. So if you're the one person in the room who isn't dieting, you may find yourself ostracized, where if you're the one in the room with abs, you may find yourself being exalted. Three, it reveals a new way that preferences can be changed. Akerloff and Cranton note that notions of identity evolve within a society, and some in the society have incentives to manipulate them. So when we as a society become more and more obsessed with identifying as fit, lean, thin, clean, etc., there are some people who find ways to manipulate these identities for profit. So we then see more and more advertising that reinforces these notions of identity, as well as with social media, the creation of influencers to help perpetuate those profits. And finally, identity may be the most important economic decision people make. As the authors state, individuals may, more or less consciously, choose who they want to be, obviously within limits as poverty, labor supply, schooling, and other factors can force people's choice. All of this to say, Bethany is not alone in suddenly finding herself falling down the rabbit hole of internet forums and influencer posts, despite the clear dangers to her mental health and the better alternatives in her path. 
As women identifying people, we are constantly being primed. Every time we log onto the internet, we see gendered norms being performed and rewarded in very visible, visceral sorts of ways. Likes and followers are tallied and displayed. Free yoga clothes and protein powders and supplements are proudly displayed by affiliates and ambassadors. Work from home fitpreneurs post their yoga flow at noon while you're eating your sad lunch at your desk. And the activity in your friend's Beachbody Facebook group seems a lot more exciting than the report you know you have to write even though no one's going to read it. We are aware that thinness or leanness or fitness or beauty of a very specific kind gets rewarded because nearly every message we've heard since the first time someone uttered, aren't you pretty at your two-year-old birthday party has reinforced that belief. And the internet and the people who perform Body Images brand has simply amplified and made it easier for us to access those messages. The internet reminds us with almost every click and scroll that pretty is more important and more valuable than any other endeavor for a woman. And it also gives us the opportunity to cash in on that perceived value. So you, you're, you know, you're, you're a doctor, like you have a doctorate, you have achieved the ultimate of what personally I think is success. What what is it about that that makes you think you have to leave to do something else, like to be have a business based on your body? Like what 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 is the motivation, I guess? You know, it's really hard to say. I think it, originally it was monetary. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was like, <laughs> oh, I see all of these women like making money, coaching people. I already have this skill set, mm -hmm. you know, so, you know, I think part of it is monetary. Um, I think, you know, part of it is. Uh, be like the draw and allure you know it's mm -hmm. you the you see these girls lives on instagram and you can't help but be like oh my god i wish i was in like a sleek white marble hotel wearing a <laughs> bikini drinking a smoothie like yeah you know <laughs> and so there is kind of this this silly vanity to it where you're like oh like a hundred of my friends love this picture of me on the beach you know like i can monetize that Mm -hmm. and live this fabulous life and barely, you know, maybe not barely work, but you know, I have a job, another job, but I'm like, you know, I can be, you know, living this jet set life, but it's not really <laughs> like that. You know, that takes one immense amount of time and energy to build a social media following where they're going to pay you to just show up to things yeah. and like be a social media influencer. Um, and then on top of that, it's really, I mean, not a super healthy mindset. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, it's like it's like this sense of like we need to run away from having a career, from being a part of, mm -hmm. you know, like, it, well, it just should be easy. I should just get paid for showing up. Right. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, because I'll be honest, like I spent several years doing the exact same thing. Like our trajectories are so similar, minus the part where I actually have a successful other career. Um, cause I just dropped out of the workforce, um, because I, I just can't anymore. Um, but that's you're a, following your dream. You're finding your passion. You're doing that thing, you know, oh, that's the goal. But I mean, really at this point, I don't even have a passion. I'm just like, I just need to not be in a place where men tell me how to do my job. That's, that's really where I'm at, mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so, yeah. so for me, it's like, well, I'm in a dead end career that I only started because I had anorexia and needed something I could do while I was in therapy. Um, you know, as opposed to like working towards a goal, which I guess that's next, but, you know, but there's something that's really alluring about this idea of like fast cash for sitting on the beach, right? Fast cash for just doing the right. thing I, that I do to control my emotions anyway. It's like, well, if I just do yoga because I love it and then I can get paid to keep doing it, why would I not do that? Right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It is so easy to fall into this way of thinking. The goal of fitness marketing is to find ways to make you identify with the people on the page or the screen, to rope you into the identity of being a fitness person or a clean eater, the kind of person who would buy the products and wear the gear and sign up for the classes and commit to making those purchases and investments a lifestyle, not a diet. But, of course, when you're busy feeling inspired by these messages, you may not actually stop to think about the motivation behind the inspiration, or what it may be doing to your own relationship with your body or your mental or emotional health. 
So a few years ago, Sarah Vance, a body image coach, started a hashtag that addressed some of the problems of inspiring people through fitness marketing. Sarah is a former bodybuilder whose identity as a fitness person led to disordered eating and poor body image. I recently started, you know, this awesome hashtag <laughs> that is fuck your fitspo. And the reason why I did that is mainly because of how fitspo is portrayed on the internet or fitness in general. Um, when it's just a load of bullshit, um, the fitness mentality or the fitspo mentality really is all about, you know, punishment and very much go hard, go home. Um, it's all driven by aesthetics and in general it's damaging. And that's really the biggest thing that, that, is so frustrating for me. It's that it's damaging, it's impractical, and it really doesn't help people. Um, for, you know, that's, that's really what, what it's supposed to inspire people, right? Inspire people to start down this fitness routine. Um, but when you, when you really look into Fitspo, the culture in and of itself, it's actually pretty damaging. Um, and it's, it's not based on any type of evidence. It's based out of fear mongering. It's based out of, you know, preying off of people's insecurities. Um, it's obviously, rooted in diet culture. It's rooted in, um, self-doubt it's rooted in fat phobia. So all the things that are completely out of alignment with what I truly believe and what I actually believe that, um, I guess if you had to, I hate the word fitness in general these days. I just hate that term. But if we had to talk about fitness, I guess it would be not really what fitness is, um, about, um, because it's really driven by, by a look and, um, very X, Y, and Z way of having fitness be curated on the internet. Um, and it's damaging. It, it's, that's the biggest thing of, of why I hate it. So fit your Fitsubo really is about just calling out the bullshit, uh, that Fitsubo talks about such as the go hard, go home mentality, such as push through pain, such as if you want it bad enough, all that stuff, which is just a load of shit that doesn't inspire people. If it does, it comes from a place of shame. And as we both know from the work that we've done and the research that we've done, um, shame doesn't really, um, help people in the long term to, um, help them. If you're really wanting to help somebody quote unquote, be, be healthy, which is kind of the base of what's Fitspo really tries to sell, which is a lie. Um, it's all, all based off of, you know, uh, um, an appearance it's a, it's appearance driven. They really don't give a shit about you as a whole. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's totally not about health. That actually, that brings up a funny thing. Uh, a coworker of mine literally yesterday was talking to another coworker near my cubicle and they were talking about bodybuilding because my coworker's a bodybuilder, but he says he's doing it in a healthy way or whatever. Right, um, yeah. Okay. I, I call bullshit, but yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but my coworker was talking about it and uh, something about like catabolism and how like, you know, your muscles start eating themselves. And so you have to be like doing whey protein and casein protein and timing your meals. And he's like, I've never met a protein I didn't like. But then... The funny thing is he's like, oh, yeah, there are these bodybuilder guys who they like wake themselves up in the middle of the night to oh, eat yeah. protein powder yeah. so that their muscles don't start eating themselves or whatever. And I just I looked up over my cubicle and I said, so that's why I stopped bodybuilding and maybe that's not healthy. And he was like, well, it's really it's not. It's like if you want it, you have to go for it. Right. Like if this is something you want, you have to you really have to just do it and commit. And it's like, well. So so you're not talking about health. You're talking about a look. You're talking exactly. about the aesthetics. Exactly. If you want to look a certain way, yeah, don't get sleep and put your body under stress and right. also be eating processed powder that uh, Lord knows what the heck is actually in that stuff. Um, and then, then, then you're healthy because right. you have extra big muscles or whatever. Yeah. So no. it, it all goes back <laughs> to like, okay, so what is it? And it is, you know, this, it's, it's an, uh, an appearance. And oftentimes it's, it's not just the appearance. It's, the, it's what we've been conditioned to believe that goes along with that appearance is really what we all buy into. Um, mm -hmm. Because if we didn't have that story attached, that certain look, then we really wouldn't probably, the majority of us wouldn't really give a shit. But this still ties into the bigger picture of then privilege and all of 
of that. It's just now, you know, kind of bled over into the fitness industry where it looks slightly different, but it's the same bullshit. It's, it's the story that we've attached to it, that this is, um, fame and money and worthiness and success. Mm. And you tried hard enough and you know, you're not lazy and you're, you're a go-getter in life and all the girls or boys or whatever the fuck are going to love you and, and find you attractive. Um, right. and you're going to be confident and you're going to be able to be beach body ready all the time and all this other <laughs> bullshit. It's, it's the story that's attached to that body that, that is the it, um, that we, um, as a culture really crave and it's, um, it's intoxicating. Um, yeah. and it's, it's quite sad, especially when you've been in it and you know what that's like and you see people that are in it. Um, but you know, as you know, when you're in it, you're almost kind of blind to it at the same time. When you're in it, you can't see it. When you've made an investment, it's in your best interest not to see it. All investments come with a certain amount of risk, but we make them based on faith in the messages we hear about said risk. So when society is turning up the volume on the idea that investing in a body-based business, like becoming a, an influencer, a bodybuilder, a blogger, a cookbook writer, a reality celebrity of some kind, is a safe bet, while at the same time marketing messages are targeting people just like you and showing you ways to identify as a body-based brand, well, why wouldn't you take that risk? Why wouldn't you invest? If it's sexy to wear a strong-as-the-new skinny t-shirt and take butt selfies and call that a career, why wouldn't everyone do it? Fitzbo tells us that we're accomplishing something important in ways that our bosses never do. And when we gain social capital and financial capital from working from home on our asanas faster than we do sitting in traffic on the morning commute? Well, I mean, it's easy to see why women would want to invest in a body-based identity. And I see this when I have um, coworkers, especially, because um, most of my friends are, are the people around me who I've curated who are already very like into body positivity, fat acceptance, etc. So it's yes, there are people who still kind of have those conversations sometimes, but for the most part, we tend to not talk about bodies unless we're talking about social justice issues. Yeah. But like coworkers, especially, listen, like overhearing, you know, in the lunchroom or you know, just on the way to a meeting where they're suddenly talking about, I have to get back to the gym. I start, you know, or they start talking about like, oh, I'm thinking about doing X, Y, Z. I just, it makes me sad because what happens when you read Oxygen or Muscle and Fitness or any of these magazines is you see the pretty pictures of these people who look like the aesthetic ideal, right? That that our culture is currently upholding, strong as the new skinny, et cetera. Um, but you don't see any of the, the story behind that. You don't see the sacrifice and the pain and the sadness and the fear. And there is a lot of that. Um, yeah. And all of it, as you mentioned earlier, it's tied to numbers, not just numbers in terms of calories and exercises, but also it's tied to capital. We yes. are, yes. you know, like one of my biggest fears for all of us is that we are not aware of specifically what capitalism means in terms of the body. Um, it is toxic to us because we are constantly trying to accumulate more, right? More friends, more followers, more people to love us, more sponsorships, more money, um, more opportunities, all of these things. They're all different types of capital. And as you mentioned, what happens? Well, as you progress, you get to that level. But because we're taught that the way to get those things is to strive, not to stall, you have to continue, quote unquote, getting better. But by better, that doesn't always mean better, right? You're constantly right. looking for things to fix or improve, as you mentioned. And I think that is a conversation we don't have. It's the constant quest of this is not good enough. I am not good enough or I do not have good. I don't have enough. Mm -hmm. It's a constant place of um, scarcity mm -hmm. where it's 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 that constant driving force of more, 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 more on Mary on many different levels from body to money to followers to mm -hmm. um 
clients to all of it. It's, it's that constant quest. And it's, it's also, you know, how it intersects with, with perfectionism where it's, it's okay, well, this is, you know, the next level, next level, and this isn't good enough. So what is next? It's the grind, right? It's the mm-hmm. grind that Fitzbo loves so much. The, this blood, sweat and tears in the, in the grind, which I hate. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's definitely tied to capitalism and especially if you are somebody that has been invested, um, you know, in something like multi-level marketing, or you quote unquote made it big out of your fitness realm or whatever. And now you have so much invested in it, not only with your body and followers, but actual monetary value. That is so difficult to have somebody get out of because you're not only asking them to face their internalized fears around their body, but now you're asking them to possibly have very, a lot of discomfort related to a, a shift in, in money. Because mm-hmm. as you know, it's, it's a lot freaking harder to say to somebody, why don't you just move your body for pleasure or whatever, or not, or you know what? You don't even have to move your body, do yeah. whatever the hell you want to do. You right. know what I mean? Like it's, it's, that does not make money. Mm-hmm. Telling somebody and selling the constant quest of weight loss or thinness or leanness or Fitzbo, that's why we have a $60 billion industry. That's why we have people that are uh, 20 years old freaking that are millionaires because off to off of multi-level marketing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's crazy when you think about it and it's all based out of that. I mean, it's, it's mind blowing. It is. And it scares me because, you know, yes, there are people who do it and function just fine and they're, they're happy in their little world, but they don't, what people don't realize is like until the entire culture shifts, there are going to be entire populations at very high risk. You know, um, I, I had a, a fitness or a fitness and health blogger person who I became uh, acquaintances with And we had some conversations about the fact that she is a full-blown anorexic and she was not giving up her quote-unquote business because she's quote-unquote helping people. And by helping people, she's getting money. So she doesn't have to work and all she can do is focus on her food and fitness all day. And so it's keeping that capital is absolutely, as you said, that investment is keeping her trapped. You know, and part of my exercise addiction, it was the investment. You put so much money into getting your body a certain way that when you have to stop doing that, it's like, well, did I just waste all my money? Did I just waste all my time? Those are precious resources that I don't get back. So I should just continue investing. I mean, obviously, we don't necessarily have this as a conscious conversation with ourselves. But, you know, it's like I need to continue investing because otherwise this will be all for naught, even though right. my leg is broken, my arm is torn, my ribs are falling out. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just like we get to the point where capitalism is literally violence against the body. I know that sounds like, like you know, I'm sure the police are coming for me right now. So sorry. Uh, but like, it really is. And it worries me that we don't know how to navigate that, especially in a world where you can make tons and tons of money online by putting a Facebook ad with your abs on it. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or before and after photo. I mean, it's, it's so, and it goes back to what I was saying before is that I don't think that we realize how damaging this is. Mm -hmm. Like, like you said, it is violent. It's extremely damaging to not only the individual that's selling it, even if they think that their life is, you know, they're fine and they're functioning fine. I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm going to call bullshit on that because I just don't, um, that, that is their life. And I guess if that is what somebody values, then, you know, more power to you. But when you really get into it, I doubt that that's what's really important to them. If they died the next day, I don't think that that's what they would actually value. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it's also damaging to a variety of people from people that have a history of eating disorders to people that are susceptible to, um, you know, having an eating disorder to people that are fat to everyday human beings that are just dealing with, you know, self doubt in general, it's damaging to all these people. And it perpetuates the bigger picture of, the epidemic of fat phobia that we have in diet culture, which we know is extremely problematic. Mm -hmm. Um, and it doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help anybody. It harms all people, regardless of where you fall on the size spectrum. No one wants to consider their investments bad. No one wants to consider sunk cost, whether financial or otherwise. 
Losing capital in a capitalist society is a sign you've failed. And especially in America's culture of the self-made man or, you know, woman, failure is just something we don't tolerate. When we leave the workforce to become a fitness brand, we're not failing at breaking the glass ceiling in our corporate jobs. We're just succeeding at harnessing alternative income streams. We're not failing at body positivity or fat acceptance or self-love. We're just works in progress, trying to push until we don't have anything left. We're gonna succeed, even if it kills us. To discuss this phenomenon, I interviewed Victoria Fariz, also a former bodybuilder and a filmmaker who's working on a documentary called Fitspo. One of the things that I'm particularly interested in is this idea that your body is your social capital. Um, and sometimes your social capital becomes attached to your actual, like, monetary capital. So, for example, when I became a uh, bodybuilder, um, part of my decision, the, the initial impetus was social capital. My boyfriend at the time told me that I wasn't worth anything unless I looked a certain way in, you know, different words, but there was And that, that you looked like Jamie Eason. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love that story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So just to briefly explain for the podcast listeners, um, he hinted at what I should look like by telling me his favorite fitness model was Jamie Eason and he loved the way she looked. And also have I considered deadlifting? Um, so I did, I looked up her, I looked up her workouts, I looked up her meal plans and I followed them to a T and by the end of the three months when I was supposed to see him again, cause we were long distance at that point, uh, I didn't look like Jamie Eason. So I broke up with him <laughs> because I was afraid of him. Uh, but what happened is after I followed a, like a muscle and fitness hers challenge, that was going to be my way of, of looking like Jamie, um, people started telling me that I could really do this as a career. You know, hey, have you thought about becoming a personal trainer so that you could teach me how to look like you? Uh, have you know? And then I started really reading those magazines with um, an eye toward the people who were doing this for a living, right? The people who were getting sponsorships, the people who had affiliate deals, the people yeah. who were being profiled, who were being flown around the country to judge <clears throat> competitions. And suddenly it became about the monetary uh, capabilities. Suddenly, I didn't have to be a, a failing artist in New York City, and I didn't have to be a retail worker in Boca Raton. I could be a world-renowned bodybuilder, fitness competition person, and like make my money by being sponsored by some pre-workout or a or a you know a clothing brand. And I see yeah. this across. It's not just bodybuilding. I see this across. Like, go on Instagram. If you do any kind of body sport, yoga, pole dance, like soccer, who cares, whatever it is, the people who are making money are the ones with affiliate deals, sponsorships, and tons and tons and tons of followers. It's a lot harder to make money doing that nowadays because now everybody is, you know, like with social media, like mm -hmm. uh, I interviewed a, a IFBB pro, um, uh, Roxy Beckles, and she talked about how when she started using social media, when social media like Instagram first came out, she was she was doing that. She was using social media to market herself and her services, her personal training and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but now everybody's doing it. So, you know, it's mm -hmm. not that rare. And now, you know, awareness, um, a knowledge of how to get this quote unquote perfect body is is so much more out there than it used to be. Um, so you know, in some ways it's much easier to become that person. Mm -hmm. So, um, really the gains of, of being sponsored are, it's all an illusion because these people, most, a lot of these people really aren't making any money. You do have your rare exceptions, like your page Hathaway's or, I mean, I don't know how much money she's making, but mm -hmm. I mean, she's, she's sponsored by a pretty big, um, by a pretty big, uh, supplement company, but other people, you know, like your you know, Joe's and Jane's who just have a six pack and are, and are getting sponsored by, you know, supplement brand number 1057. Mm -hmm. Um, they're not making any money off of it because there's no money to be made. It takes, it takes a lot to make money off of that. And many times what they're only getting paid in supplements mm -hmm. and these supplements are garbage. I mean, a lot of there's, there's no regulation for, for what goes into the supplements. So it's really, I think a lot of it is an illusion to like pretend that you, um, that you are someone to pretend that you're insta like you're an insta famous you know uh, 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 fitness person 
Um, when I was training for my bodybuilding competition, my, my coach, my team, they would hold these seminars where, you know, we would talk about making, making a living out of your body pretty much. And, um, you know, learning to use social media to brand yourself and, you know, um, some also like multi-level marketing stuff, but, um, you know, how to, how to get picked up by fitness magazines, you know, that you had to, uh, uh, hire your own photographers and, and that now, and, you know, you, you, you have to build your own. Cause my coach, she had done that to herself. She, she kind of built her own platform by hiring photographers. If, if nobody was getting her, um, to, to, um, and nobody was taking her, her picture, any magazine was taking her picture. She would hire the photographers and take her own pictures to make herself relevant and to have these cool pictures. Cause you know, Instagram's very, um, I mean, it's all images. So duh, of course it's going to be very image oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is kind of like what we were told. Um, and then of course, after your, your competition, you go and you take your, you, you go and take your professional pictures right after competition to, to, or around competition time. Cause that's when you're looking your best. So, you know, you want those as proof to get clients and, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different tactics that are, um, in which you can make money off of your body in which people feel that this is going to save them. Mm-hmm. I know, I know one girl right now, actually, who's, um, training for a competition who, when I ask her, what do you want out of this? You know, she used to be very, she used to be overweight mm-hmm. and she lost a lot of weight. And, uh, now she's, she's, she's training for her first bikini competition. And I'll ask her, well, what do you want out of this? And she gives me these big answers about how, you know, she wants to get sponsored. You know, she thinks that may bring some opportunities to make a career out of it, you know, to become a model. And I've heard this so often, you know, these girls who get sucked into this whole lifestyle, who believe that they're going to become fitness models mm-hmm. and who put, who invest all this money and all this effort into thinking that they're going to get picked up. They're going to be discovered. And, um, it's, it's a very vague, um, they're very vague about it. It's, it's almost like they're living in la la land thinking that, um, I'm not saying it can't happen, but a lot of them are very vague about it, mm-hmm. uh, because they don't quite understand how the industry works. Um, they don't understand how hard it is to make money off of this, especially now where it's kind of oversaturated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if, if you're using your body to sell, you know, your isogenics or to sell your herbal life or to sell, you know, skinny TD talks, whatever, whatever it is that you're using or to sell your six pack bags, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're reliant on your body to sell that for you because your body is proof. And, um, I don't know if I'm kind of answering your question. I think I'm deviating a little bit. Um, keep going, keep going. But, um, your body is proof. And that's, that's scary because now you depend on your body. So I actually spoke to, um, uh, uh, a man by the name of, um, David Wiss, who has, um, a center in LA where he, uh, a clinic where he works with, um, people who have addictions, but oftentimes they have a, co- a comorbidity with eating disorders. Mm-hmm. So they may be, ha- they may have a heroin addiction, but they also have an eating disorder. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of which in which they're, they're actually rather similar. Um, and he works a lot with men with body dysmorphia. And so we, I interviewed him about this. I'm like, you know, what, what do you think about people who, why, why might, why might it be so difficult for people who know that they have an eating disorder or they have an issue with where, where their fitness or health is no longer healthy, but their, but their, um, their income depends on it. Like that is what they've made into their body. And he gave us, you know, um, you'd have to watch the documentary to see what he said, but it was, uh, it was, he really laid it out so beautifully in that you're kind of stuck. You're stuck in this place of denial where, um, you might end up even killing yourself because now you, Mm -hmm. you depend on this for your livelihood. You depend, this has become your identity. And what do you do without it? How do you, how do you come out to people and say, oh shit, you know what? Um, this whole time I was selling you all this stuff. Um, I was maybe medicating with this, this, and that because, um, I was depressed because I no longer wanted this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, I developed an addiction to this because my body could no longer give me the high that, you know, it once did, yeah. or I developed an eating disorder or, you know, I have intestinal issues because of the excessive supplement use or all the dieting or whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you're kind of stuck in this place where you're having to continue playing the role. Yep. Because how do you come out and say what's really happening? 
And I see this with a lot of people that I, that I used to compete with and with mm, this one person in particular who, uh, there's all these signs that she's no longer enjoying what she's doing, mm-hmm. but she, she can't, she just can't like her whole, she's developed an industry. She's developed wealth. She's developed an empire mm-hmm. around her body and, and what she's selling and how, I don't know that she can even admit it to herself. You know, that's the thing. Like how, how, how could you ever admit to yourself that this has become an issue when, you know, it's a scary thing to do for, for the regular person who has a, a job that doesn't depend on fitness, but when your whole identity and your whole livelihood depends on when your, you know, your, your mortgage and your kids, you know, your kids' education and everything depends on that, that's a scary place. So yeah, a lot of people go into this thinking that they're going to make money off of this, but I'd say, you know, be very careful because your body becomes proof. The trouble with your body as proof, your body as brand, is that when your behaviors become detrimental, you have to make a choice. And if this were just about protecting your emotional or mental health, that choice might be a little easier. You could get a therapist or an accountability partner or keep a journal or start on a path toward recovery. But if you have other people who are invested, socially and financially, in a certain vision of who you are as a person, your body, your behaviors, your brand, then you have much less incentive to actually make a change. In the next episode, we're going to explore what happens when body as brand becomes dangerous to your health, even if your investors, followers, and fans don't see your brand as a problem. The Your Body, Your Brand podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Kyla Tova. Dramaturgical feedback was provided by Kendall Lynch. Music for the intro was written and produced by Mackenzie Quattlebaum. Concept photography for the website, social media, and podcast cover art was taken by Riza Scott of RF Scott Imagery. To support this independent, ad-free podcast and help us develop a season two, please consider becoming a patron. Patrons who pledge $3 a month or more will get exclusive audio, including cut audio and longer previously unreleased interviews. This week's interview is with Dan Pink. Just visit patreon.com slash bodybrandpod. For show notes and links to guests who appeared on today's episode, please visit bodybrandpod.com slash listen slash investments. If you're loving the podcast, I would also really, really encourage you to please write a review in the Apple Podcasts app, the Stitcher app, or wherever you're listening to your podcasts. I know it seems like an extra step, but if you think that other people should hear this podcast, Leaving a review really, really, really helps. I just want to read you a couple of the reviews we've gotten already. This one is from JMG1130, and the title is Everyone Needs to Hear This. I just listened to the first few episodes and I'm totally hooked. It is thoughtful and resonates with me on so many levels. As an anti-diet feminist and personally as someone who has struggled with burnout culture, corporate culture, and understands the appeal of dropping out to start a business, everyone needs to listen to this. This from TJLC is thought-provoking and beautifully produced. I'm loving this podcast. Thank you so much for providing such interesting content, Kyla. You're welcome. It's helping me find my way as I build a business in health coaching while totally raging against the traditional views of what health and wellness means. You're helping me find more ways to be very thoughtful about my marketing. It's also just a very fun podcast to listen to. Thanks for that, and um, stay tuned, because... I've got some thoughts on health coaching. It happens around episode six. The headline of this review totally caught me, and I'm really, really grateful that there are people who aren't the target audience for this podcast who are listening. So this review is from DJ Nishama, and the headline is, That Was Unexpected. I am very much not the target audience for this podcast, but I am enjoying it way more than I thought. It's very informative and insightful, and I find myself flat out enjoying the storytelling that has been happening. But what hit me the most is how language is used very conscious of how words are handled, especially for LGBTQ and POC people. Of the episodes that have been dropped, everyone has had clear definitions that are very inclusive for all kinds of people. Thank you. Going to keep listening. Well, you're welcome, and also thank you for uh, hearing that. One of my intentions with this podcast is really to make sure that even though a lot of the trends have reflected cis, straight, white femininity, I I do believe that these are things that affect everyone, and so we have to be able to hear it in a way that is safe and inclusive and also um, addresses an audience outside of the cis, straight, white, feminine group from which 
all of these trends seem to have sprung. That's not all the reviews, uh, there's a whole bunch more, but I don't wanna make you listen to this all day. So uh, I really encourage you to leave a review. I would also really love some voicemails from you so I can play them at the end of the next podcast. Um, share your story. Uh, if you do wanna be interviewed for a future season, you can absolutely send me an email about that as well. So uh, I'm looking for health coaches, yoga teachers, personal trainers, or wellness entrepreneurs of any kind, um, or people who have considered dropping out of the workforce. I do want to hear your story. If you have just like a short introduction, some reflections on the podcast, something that you would have put in an iTunes review that you would like to vocally share, you can send me a text email or better yet, record a voice memo and just email it to me at yourbodyyourbrand at gmail.com. I'm looking forward to hearing from you and I am so grateful that you guys are with me on this journey. I know that today's episode gets kind of deep into the weeds and the economics. And next week, we're going to be talking a little bit about disordered eating. So I'm really excited to share this information with you and also to hear what you're thinking and how these topics resonate or don't with you. All right, I'm looking forward to next week and I'll see you then.